Hi everyone, I'm Abby Berger. Welcome to Let's Rethink This. Today I'm talking with an old friend, Gabriella Carbone. Gabriella has her Bachelor of Arts in Public and Community Services Studies at Providence College and completed her Master of Social Work from Hunter College. She now works with unhoused adults at the Bowery Mission in New York City, assessing for need, creating individual action plans, and managing crisis situations. So I met Gabriella in 2013, which we will get into in a bit. We have followed each other on social media since and stayed in touch a bit. So when I launched this podcast and posted about it, she reached out asking if she could come on and talk about her experience working in the social services field while also managing a mental illness. I'm really excited to be talking with her this morning. So let's welcome Gabriella. Hi, it's so good to be here. Thanks for having me. Awesome. So before we get into it, do you want to just start off with telling us a little bit about yourself and your story? Yeah, so I specifically want to start off with um, two two things about me uh, and my mental health journey. So uh, my class and my race, um, because nobody can see me. So I was born and raised in an Italian-American family, a middle-class family in Queens, New York. Um, I give these details because it's important to recognize that race and class can be barriers or benefits when accessing mental health care. You can find more details about it on the mayor's dashboard for New York City. So in my case, I benefited. In particular, privilege is part of the reason I could attend a college with free access to a psychologist and a psychiatrist when I needed it most. And having that access to a psychologist is what inspired me to be in a counseling role for people who need it most, people who don't have access to high quality care. And by high quality care, I mean services at which the highly trained staff are not overwhelmed with too many patients to care for. That's something we see a lot of in low income communities because of the lack of funding to make mental health services available. And this is important to my journey as well because as a social worker, I not only look at what is inside a person's experience, but also what is the context of their experience? Great. Yeah. And I think that's definitely very important to put up front and because access to care is so important. It makes such a difference in someone's recovery journey um, in the supports that they have in place, even having a family that you can rely on and, and reach out to when you need them is so important and is not something that everyone facing a mental health challenge has access to or um, has the support from. So I definitely thank you for putting that um, preface out there for our listeners. And just for everybody listening, Gabrielle and I met in 2013. We both participated in a year of volunteering with the Jesuit Volunteer Corps after college. So you were in Washington, D.C. I was in Raleigh, North Carolina. Um, but because we were both in the program on what they considered the East Coast, we were together for some retreats and semi-annual get-togethers. And obviously, when we met, I didn't know you had a bipolar diagnosis. That's not typically something you uh, talk about when you meet somebody for the first time. So 
when did you receive your diagnosis? Did it take some time to get a correct diagnosis? Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah. So I first received my diagnosis when I was 19, which was the spring of my sophomore year of college. Um, for my symptoms, I was often awake all night long with high energy, uh, generally engaging in very impulsive, dangerous behavior. Uh, I also developed hypergraphia, which is the urgent impulse to write a lot. Um, and I never heard that before, um, but I would write all over my body. And I also physically felt like the only thing holding me together was my skin, which is very uncomfortable. Um, it's important for me to share the obscure details because anytime someone acts moody, people just go, oh, bipolar or, oh, my girlfriend's so bipolar. My boyfriend's so bipolar. So I just want to say that the term shouldn't be tossed around like that. Anyway, my roommates and a few college staff were all concerned about me and highly encouraged me to go see the school psychologist, to put it lightly. Um, before leaving for the summer, I was diagnosed with bipolar 2 disorder. I went home, told my parents, um, who were not familiar with mental illness at the time, and they said I was just being irresponsible and partying too hard. And that summer, my behavior continued and got worse. And when I returned in the fall, it was even worse with depression now keeping me asleep and una unable to function for days at a time. So with support from friends and college staff, I returned to the psychologist. I reluctantly accepted the diagnosis and I started medication. And for me, my diagnosis has not changed since and my medication has only changed once. So I'm very lucky in these ways. That is really lucky and, and kind of uncommon for mental illness to get a correct diagnosis right off the bat and to get a medication that works pretty well. Um, so I'm glad to hear that that is certainly not the case for everyone. And if you are on your mental health journey and trying to find what works for you, keep going, um, keep looking for what works for you. So when you were going through all this, obviously you were working with your college staff, your friends, finding the support from your school. Were you working at the time? I was working um, part-time um, in one of the campus offices, um, but it was mainly school that I was focusing on. Um, I was in honors classes and multiple clubs as well. Um, I was late for almost everything. My sleep schedule was non-existent. Um, I would break down crying to people and I was really lucky that I had professors that granted extensions when I needed them, which unfortunately was almost all of the time. Though I went to therapy most weeks, I was not consistent with medication. Um, it was very hard for me to have a daily reminder of my situation every time I took a pill. Plus knowing that I would probably need a pill every day for the rest of my life. So that experience really informs my work because I personally know how hard it is to accept that this is going to be something you carry for the rest of your life. Right. And something that you have to manage continually because it's not, so it, you don't get it under control once and then you're good. You know, there's things that happen in life and around us that impact our mental health every day. And so it's a constant readjustment reassessment. Where am I at? What can I be doing to support myself better? So when you were in school, how 
how did you manage school? You talked about going to class late. What, what kind of supports did either your psychologist or your friends provide for you to help you navigate through that and like be more timely or, or was that happening at all? Um, I, I, I have to be honest. I don't think the timeliness ever happened (laughs) while I was still in college. Um, I was always the night person. I was always up until three in the morning, um, trying to, to do work, procrastinating. And I was also a perfectionist and felt very, I had, I lacked a lot of confidence in my work. So I would hand it in very last minute. And, um, my friends were super supportive. Um, my boyfriend at the time was as supportive as he could be. And I feel for him looking back. Um, but yeah, everybody was as supportive as they could possibly be listening to me. Um, my roommates would help wake me up and thankfully they're still my friends to this day. Um, but I definitely tested those relationships because when I look back, I was like a bit of a tornado and, um, I think it was a little hard to be around me. But that's so nice that you did have friends that supported you and loved you and said, we're going to stick with you through this, regardless of uh, how chaotic it can be sometimes to be supporting somebody that's dealing with a mental illness that's pretty new and dealing with getting on the right medicine and, and things like that. So during this time, did you seek or have support from others that have a similar diagnosis? Like, had you met anybody with a bipolar two diagnosis at the time of your, um, first learning about this? Yeah. So I, um, I never expected mental illness to happen to me. Uh, so when I begrudgingly accepted it, I became determined to make my diagnosis known so that other people would know mental illness was common and not be as afraid of it as I was. So I was kind of like telling everybody. And I was actually surprised to have college friends say they experienced the same thing. And that really helped me. Um, and then when I went to DC as you know my Jesuit volunteer year, I met someone else, else with bipolar too. And that was a pivotal relationship for me um, because this person was so supportive. And I'll never forget, they once said to me, Gabriella, you may be surviving without medication and therapy, but you're not thriving. So it's important to say I went back and forth with treatment and accepting my diagnosis for about seven years. But having support from others that could relate to my situation made me strive to be better and manage better. Yeah, definitely. And, and I think that's common to try to navigate that space for a while. I don't think it happens overnight, um, for most people. So I don't, I don't think that your experience is uncommon. So now I kind of want to talk about your working life, you know, your professional life, your social worker now, and you've worked with a couple of different populations, right? So you've worked with children, adolescents, adults, and now you're working specifically with unhoused adults, right? Yes. And how did you get into working with that specific population? What drew you to it? Yeah, so um, it was definitely a journey for me. Um, I've been teaching swimming to small children since high school. 
So I got to work with them for many years. Um, and I was still teaching swimming up until before the pandemic. Um, and then after college, as we mentioned, I was placed in a high school for a counseling role through Jesuit Volunteer Corps. I absolutely loved it. And I learned so much from my coworkers about how to support and engage with teenagers. However, I realized that when I work with teens, I become very concerned for their well-being. And I'm not able to emotionally separate as much as is needed to be effective. So when I came back to New York um, after DC, I knew I needed to try counseling with a different population. And I remembered that I had an experience at a soup kitchen in college that really changed my life and changed my thinking about people experiencing homelessness. Um, that, that experience, that semester taught me that people experiencing homelessness are not necessarily dangerous or mentally ill or drug using, um, which is the stigma. Um, they're just people going through a very, very tough circumstance. So I applied in New York for a job at Breaking Ground and I became a case manager for two years. And I truly loved the work. Specifically, I liked the non-judgmental nature of the environment and the way we would collaborate with clients to help them set and work on their own goals. And overall, I also just care about how essential shelter is for humans to survive and hopefully thrive, as I was taught. I think in, in most major cities, there's a housing crisis and there's not enough housing for all the people that live there. I know for St. Louis, there's definitely not enough housing. We have very full shelters, people unable to find places to sleep at night. And so it is important to work in that space. And you're absolutely right that not everyone in shelters has a mental illness, has a substance use disorder, has a, you know, all of these kind of stigmas that exist for unhoused people aren't necessarily true. I think everyone is one step away and that could be a really small step or it could be a huge step away from homelessness because what keeps you housed is having an income, having a support structure, having the resources in your bank account if something does go wrong. And there are people who are fortunate enough to have a really big cushion um, and safety net. And there are people that have a really small cushion and safety net. And if a wrench gets thrown in or, you know, you hit a little pebble, you can be knocked into homelessness. And I think that's a huge misconception that it can't happen to you. I, when I was in JVC, I worked um, for Catholic charities in Raleigh and I worked at a food pantry and I did a lot of the intake. I did a lot of the talking to the families that were coming in to assess whether or not they needed food. And, and you're absolutely right. Like every conversation was just so interesting because there were people who were middle income, they had good jobs and something went wrong or somebody got sick or somebody broke a bone and now they're out of food pantry. So I think there's a huge misconception about the need and where it stems from. So I really appreciate you bringing that up. I 
do recognize and, and want to say that some people living, some people that are unhoused do have a mental illness. And sometimes being unhoused causes a mental illness, right? Like it can cause you to spin into some pretty bad life circumstances that can't, I guess I shouldn't say cause a mental illness, but can bring out an underlying mental illness. Um, So what do you think the intersection is with housing and mental illness? Um, I want to start with saying that housing and mental health are interdependent, which is exactly what you're getting at. If you don't have housing, how can you maintain good mental health? So safety, sleep schedules, regular healthy meals, clean bathrooms, all of that is hard to come by, let alone the, the money for travel to get mental health care. And homelessness makes everything harder, which is especially the case for people managing a mental illness. So then the first statement in reverse, if you don't have stable mental health, how are you going to manage your housing? If your symptoms are unmanaged, how can you uphold the obligations of independent living, such as paying rent and bills on time or maintaining a clean and safe home? Mental illness requires support and personalized treatment. So the truth is that some mental illness is very severe, even with treatment. And people with that situation often need supportive housing. So for anyone who doesn't know, at its bare minimum, supportive housing in New York City is basically an apartment building with case managers to check on the tenants' overall well-being and help them manage their apartments, their finances, and their appointments. So it helps people to live full lives. And sadly, the wait list is long, and this leaves so many people on the street for months or years where their mental health truly suffers. Um, We have a solution in supportive housing. We just need to have a lot more of it. Yeah, I I would agree with you completely. We have um, at Independence Center in St. Louis, we also have supported housing for our members. And unfortunately, it is one of the biggest issues that we face is not having enough space for the people that need it because the need outweighs the resource. Maintaining your own mental health is obviously really important when working in any job, but especially the social service field that can be really full of a lot of emotion, a lot of work, a lot of hard situations are faced um, in the social services field. So how do you maintain your own mental health while doing that work? Yeah, I've, um, I've definitely run into situations where I have had my triggers tested. Um, and, you know, somebody who reminds me of somebody in my personal life, um, a person, like a, a client who reminds me of something that I went through, and that can definitely throw you off. But, you know, through my training and through my, um, short time in this career, I've definitely come to learn more about myself and and what can, um, like I said, what can, what can trigger me, what can throw me off so that I am not thrown off in practice. Um, and you know, in terms of how I take care of myself, this is what works for me. And it took me 10 years to figure it out. 
Um, and I imagine it will keep evolving. So what I do um, is I take daily medication. I attend regular therapy. I get eight hours of sleep a night. And I now I'm a morning person. I pass out at 10 p.m. I am done for the day. <laughs> and um, I try to exercise three times a week, um, bright and early. I switched and became a morning person, like I said. Um, and yeah, in addition to individual practices and my own work, in this field, you also need a positive collaborative team around you. And I'm just so blessed that I found that from my days as a case manager up until now and through now. Um, and because I'm a newer social worker, I get regular supervision with seasoned social workers. And, you know, that happens weekly. And they're also just accessible on, you know, daily. Um and so in meetings and discussions with them, I can say, hey, I notice I'm getting very emotionally invested in this case with this client. Can we talk about it? And we'll discuss reinforcing healthy boundaries. Maintaining good health, mental health is a personal job as well as a communal one. And the support is just invaluable. So I know you mentioned this earlier um, about your family just thinking, you were partying too much, that you were just out of control in college when some of these issues started to surface. So if you feel comfortable, what does that look like now? Has your family accepted it more? Are they, um, do they understand mental illness a little bit better now? Yeah, I think, um, because I've, I've lived away from my family for most of the years um, since leaving for college. So it's really become like, an, like I said, an individual practice for me, um, daily practice. So I've kind of come to, to manage it on my own. Um, and my family, my immediate family like checks on me um, and kind of can hear it in my voice if I'm not doing very well. And, you know, like my mom is always there to talk things out with me. Um, but for the most part, I, I manage it and I, you know, I have a niece and I just want to set a good example for her and she's aware of my diagnosis and I want to set a good example for her, um, you know, to manage her mental health as she grows up, you know, cause managing mental health is not just for people with mental illness. It's everybody needs to do it. Everybody, you know, just like you, you know, would be wise to manage your physical health you need to also look at your mental health, your emotional well-being. Um, so I try to, to think about, you know, what I would want her to see as well. Absolutely. It's kind of like setting the example of brushing your teeth twice a day. You know, yep. it's, that's a standard practice that everybody hopefully follows <laughs> um, and does brush their teeth and has good dental hygiene. But that's not a weird thing to say to somebody. It's not a weird example to set for kids. And in that same token, thinking about your mental health, checking in with yourself, making sure that you're doing okay every day is something we should be role modeling for the people around us. So I, I agree with you there. So do you think that there's a misconception that people living with a mental illness cannot provide support and for other people who are facing pretty severe struggles, like being unhoused, dealing with substance use, dealing with mental illness, whatever that looks like for them. 
and a hold a stable job. Do you think there's a misconception there? Yes. Um, unfortunately, I know that there is misconception because it impacted me just recently during social work school. Um, so without going into too much detail, I lost an internship because the site found out that I called out sick for three days since I was in a psychiatric hospital for a week. Um, thankfully, we have workplace protections against discrimi discrimination on the basis of mental illness, but I actually couldn't find those same protections for interns. And just with the situation being how it was, um, my school advised that I find a placement elsewhere and they actually helped me find a different placement. And it ended up being that, that new placement ended up being a great experience. Um, but I'll still never forget what happened because while I was in the hospital, I could not wait to get back to serving my clients. And it was really crushing to hear that my supervisor wanted to protect my clients from me as if I would harm them in some way because I was having a difficult time. Um, I think it was an attack on my character and my professionalism. And I just know I'm not alone in experiencing the consequences of this misconception. I'm just one of many examples of how people with mental illness can provide support and hold stable jobs. Yeah, I'm sorry that happened. That is a really challenging situation to be in. And I'm sure it's kind of demoralizing to you when you're working so hard to manage your mental health, to manage your caseload and support the people that you're serving, and then get a blow like that where they're saying, well, because you are taking the steps to care for yourself and seeking treatment, that the response is you no longer have a job when in reality, you're just taking care of yourself. You know, that's what was happening in that situation from my perspective, you know, just listening to you say that. So I'm sorry that happened. I, it sounds like, you know, you got into a good placement and that is something to consider for us moving forward is what do those protections look like for interns, for students, for other populations outside of employees, because it does happen, unfortunately. And the way to combat it is to speak about it, to educate people about mental illness, to have them understand that being in a hospital is not the end of the world. It is really helpful to a lot of people to get set kind of back on track and, and, um, get the support that they need. So thank you for sharing that. And I just want to add too, when it comes to talking about psychiatric hospitals and, you know, experiences on psych wards, it was actually my biggest fear since being diagnosed. It was my biggest fear to end up going to a psychiatric hospital because I had heard of it happening to someone else by force. And I was really scared that somebody would, would force that upon me. And the way it happened was I actually took myself um, and I just, I want people to be, if possible, like, I know you have all kinds of listeners and um, it was basically, it was a good experience for me. Not every psych hospital experience is positive, but it is possible to have a positive experience and to come out of it feeling a lot better, um, feeling empowered and being more sure that you can handle 
your situation going forward. And um, even practically speaking, like I was given more tools, like CBT tools to practice. And even though I've studied them, I was in groups where I learned to practice them for myself. Um, and it's funny, I'm still friends with people I met in the hospital to today. We didn't have cell phones at the time, but we like got each other's numbers and then we're connected after we got out. And there's a camaraderie a lot of times in there, like, when are you going to get out? And, um, you know, there's, there's a sense of humor about it as well. Um, that's, that was a part of my experience. Um, but yeah, I think, I think we need to normalize different treatment like different types of treatment because what works for one person won't work for another. And if you have like an acute experience, then you need acute care, acute treatment. Yep. Absolutely. I mean, again, I keep making the correlation to physical health, but it, it is the same thing. Physical health and mental health are the same. It's, you know, if you're in crisis, a physical health crisis, you go, to the emergency room. If you're in a mental health crisis, you get the support that you need to get yourself out of it. And um, I can't say that enough to the people listening, how important it is to treat your mental health, like your physical health and, and understand that it's all in one body, right? Like it's, it is all one body. (laughs) So it's (laughs) not, (laughs) it's not separate. It's not different. It's not something that should be stigmatized in the way that it is. And I so appreciate you coming on and talking about your experience and sharing what you've been through and, and kind of the supports that have helped you navigate your way to where you are now and to being in a support position. So before we wrap up, I do want to ask you this question that I've asked everyone on the podcast, and it is, if you could debunk one myth about mental illness, what would it be? Okay. So I thought about this one a lot. Um, and the people who've come on your podcast have had really good answers. Um, and it's, it's such a valuable question. So for me, the myth I would debunk is that people with mental illness are broken in some way. Um, I've heard this from others and I have felt it myself. Um, as we discussed, stigma against mental illness still exists, and it can often be generational. Um, deep-rooted stigma on top of fun facts, like the fact that people with bipolar disorder have a higher rate of divorce, uh, can be internalized. And that happened for me, and it creates a lot of shame and a lot of concern. Um, so this stigma and the shame really affects romantic relationships. And that's kind of what what I'm focusing on in, in my answer and the issues you face managing not only the illness, but the shame of having the illness can make you feel really hard to love. Um, mental illness often feels like a burden and no one wants to walk into a relationship and give someone else a burden to bear. So I think if we could normalize mental illness by having more education, more non-judgmental conversations, as well as greater access to mental health care, then we would see and feel much healthier relationships and people would not be um, afraid to, to share in a, a dating situation that they, they have a mental illness. People would not be afraid to, to bring that to someone new. Um, and the hope is that 
the person is managing it themselves. But the reality, like I said, is it's a communal endeavor as well. And so um, it is very important for someone managing a mental illness to have supports. And, and you don't want, and I, you've had people from NAMI on your podcast, and that is such an important organization. And it really speaks to the fact that they're people like families and friends and romantic partners are all affected by mental illness. And the better we can equip everyone with uh, different ways to, to support somebody and, and to support themselves, like friends and partners, you know, need to be able to support themselves. And so if we could do all that together and have these open conversations, then, then I do think that we would have like much happier relationships. Yeah, I think so too. I think it's a open communication is essential and understanding where somebody else is at only helps relationships grow and having the tools to support somebody dealing with a mental illness. And also, just like you said, with NAMI, having the tools to support yourself as you're supporting someone with mental illness, it's all so essential. And I think those are all really good points. So I just want to say thank you for being on the podcast. I'm so glad that we could catch up and you could share more about your story and and tell us a little bit about the work that you're doing. I think that the more people talk about their mental health, the more people will recognize how pervasive mental illness is in the community and how with the right supports and medication, mental illness can be managed and you can live a full life. So if you liked what you heard today, please make sure you're rating and reviewing or sharing this podcast with your family and friends. Um, If you have a guest in mind that you'd like to hear from, you can reach out to us on Instagram our handle is at let's rethink this pod. If you are struggling with a mental illness or a substance use disorder, please visit our website, www.independentcenter.org to find a list of local and national resources. I can't wait to talk to you all next week.